If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome to Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ on this first Sunday of Advent. Here at Mayflower, no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Today begins the season of Advent. <clears throat> what is that exactly? Advent <clears throat> is a liturgical season that helps us step out of the hustle and bustle that we might cultivate hope, peace, joy, and love. During these four weeks, we consider stories, scriptures, and traditions that have been passed down to us throughout the generations that we might continue the work of collective liberation and behold the presence of God in flesh and bone in each other. As we move through this season together, our theme comes from a line from Mary's song of protest and praise. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is God's name. God's mercy is for those who fear God from generation to generation. From generation to generation, that phrase reminds us of the ways our lives, histories, actions, and stories are connected and woven together. The work of God is always unfolding in us and through us. This Advent, we will remember the ways that we belong to a story etched into the wrinkles of time, to generations that have come before and will come after, to a love that will not let us go. Will you bow your heads with me? It's that time of year when we read apocalyptic texts, Holy One, the ones with warnings that no one knows the day nor the hour, and the night is far gone, the day is near. Scripture cautions, then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left, and two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. Those lines hit differently today, for we read them holding the Bible in one hand and multiple reports of mass shootings in the other. University of Virginia students will be on a class trip, three will be taken. Families and patrons will be reveling at Club Q. Five will be taken. 
People will be shopping for Thanksgiving dinner in Walmart. Six will be taken. One would think we would not need the insistence of the text telling us to wake from sleep and snap out of our complacency. The relentless gunshots should have startled us awake. The weeping families of whose children are no more should prevent us from acting as if nothing is wrong. Give us the urgency of scripture, Holy One, to stop this sickness. Let the fever of gun worship break that we might send our children to school without fearing the worst or make a grocery store run without worrying about who's got a gun. Be with us as we work towards the promised day when our guns are beaten into plowshares, making garden tools to help us plant seeds that new life might grow. We know what happens otherwise. We pray in the name of Jesus, the one we call the Prince of Peace. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadad and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Which clears it up, I'm sure. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Selathael, and Selathael the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Buid, and Abuid the father of Elakim, and Elakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eluid, and Eluid the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Genealogies are my favorite part of the Bible, said no one ever. 
For people unfamiliar with the Bible, it may be surprising to discover that ancient scripture is full of genealogies. For those who know the Bible, the genealogies, the begats, are considered the boring bits to jump over to get to the real story. Apparently, the biblical approach to genealogies is to do them early and often. Not only does Matthew open his gospel with one, the first human genealogy in the Bible comes in the first book. We find it in Genesis chapter 5. This is the list of the descendants of Adam. When God created humankind, God made them in the likeness of God. Male and female, God created them, and God blessed them and named them humankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and then he died. Theologian Diana Butler Bass reminds us that this fifth chapter of Genesis continues on in the same manner for 27 verses, tracing Adam's family to Noah at the time of the flood. There are two dozen such lists in the Hebrew Bible, some very lengthy, some short. And there are two major genealogies in the New Testament, one in Matthew, which we read today, and the other in Luke. Although searching for online family history may be big business or an engaging addiction, it is also a deeply spiritual preoccupation, one that does not just apply to Christianity. Other faiths are just as obsessed Diana Butler Bass explains in her book, Grounded, Islamic scriptures and traditions trace the genealogies of Ishmael, the prophets, including Jesus, Muhammad, and his descendants, and early heroes and teachers of faith. Buddhists track the lineage of Dharma, the teachings of particular schools and teachers, as well as the genealogies of gifted gurus and leaders. It is possible to view reincarnation itself as a genealogy of sorts, a spiritual line of enlightenment manifesting itself through generations. And most tribal religions throughout the world base their existence on their lineage from creation as well as their spiritual leadership through families of shamans. Genealogy is one of the most significant, perhaps even universal, aspects of the phenomenon called religion. Since the dawn of time, human beings have believed that spiritual insight and power somehow passes down through generations. Despite the fact that most people find them dull reading, the Bible's genealogies have sparked much debate throughout the centuries. Skeptics insist that the lists, with their omissions, contradictions, and incomprehensibly long lifespans, are not only irrelevant, they undermine scripture's historicity and veracity. Conservative Christians claim the lists are accurate in every detail, 
including, of course, that Methuselah had a son when he was 187 years old and lived another 782 years after that, and that the priest Melchizedek had no parents whatsoever. Thus, doubters use genealogy to disprove the Bible, denying its veracity, while the devout literally use the same texts to prove fantastical tales, demanding that faith entails accepting dubious history and science. But you already know that there are more than these two ways to view, understand, and appreciate scripture at this church. We believe head and heart are equal partners in faith. We are a church that believes, as preacher Harry Emerson Fosdick once said, that finality in the Bible is ahead. We have not reached it. We cannot yet encompass all of it. God is leading us out towards it. The socio-historical context of the writing of Matthew's gospel helps us identify some of Matthew's motivation in putting together Jesus' genealogy. The writing, the writer of Matthew presents Jesus as the king of the Jews, you heard it in that opening line, an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The claim is big and bold, directed toward a Jewish audience seeking both political liberation and spiritual empowerment during a time of oppression. Matthew proclaims that this Jesus, whose story he tells, embodied both King David's royal authority and the covenantal authority of Abraham. So all of God's promises to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus, who appeared to be the son of a carpenter, but was in actuality both king and savior. Matthew's genealogy provides Jesus's legal pedigree. He is the son of David in Israel's royal line. Matthew puts Jesus's family tree together so that it is clear that he is all right. He has the right connections, the right bloodline, the right lineage, and this was very important to the original audience. But Matthew has a second purpose his genealogy tells readers that Jesus' ancestry is the human story of faith and faithlessness, of good deeds and wicked ones, of saintly actions and dubious intentions. In other words, Jesus may be king in the royal line of David, but his family is pretty much the same as everyone else's. I mean, Matthew just puts it out there. Jesus, son of Joseph, has a family genogram that could keep a therapist occupied for years. When one looks at the individuals listed, it would be easy to argue that Jesus might have preferred to ignore or deny some of these connections. There are thieves, abusers, liars, and cheats. To say that there are tricksters in the lineup is perhaps the most generous way to describe those who might otherwise be called deplorables. 
we might as well admit that we too have a vested interest in separating Jesus from these folks. It benefits us. If Jesus only has bright and shiny ancestors, it's easier to explain how Jesus turned out the way he did. We can't possibly meet Jesus' standards because we come from more troublesome stock. And besides, if Jesus only came from good people, well, again, we don't have to meet that standard and we don't have to work through the really difficult biblical stories that involve stealing birthrights and violence and treachery. But I doubt Jesus would have wanted Matthew to clean up the genealogy presented, primarily because Jesus never avoids coming into contact with those who were considered unclean or with sinners in any of the stories we have about him. He never crosses the street to avoid sharing a sidewalk with those of questionable character. Indeed, in the stories we have about Jesus, it seems he carries those stories with him and, and actually holds them up to the light, asking, what did each person pass on or contribute? How did they participate in God's liberation and love? Or how did they try to thwart God's justice what can I learn from them, and what is my role now? What will I pass on to the next generation? Was it what Jesus knew about David's cruelty and violence towards women that made Jesus empower and honor women? Was it what Jesus knew about Jacob stealing a blessing that made Jesus pass blessings out like candy to teach us that no one needs to take what is someone else's because there really is enough for everyone? Or was it the story of King Uzziah who tried to usurp the priesthood and was subsequently struck with leprosy that inspired Jesus to reach out and touch the lepers he encountered, showing us that the power of inclusion can heal wounds that have nothing to do with sickness? Or was it the story of Tamar and how she had to force her father-in-law to make things right at great risk to herself that made Jesus stand between the mob and their target and invite whoever was without sin to cast the first stone? It certainly seems that Jesus knew the stories from whence he came for good and for ill, and that he took stock of his inheritance and then committed to doing things differently for the sake of those who would come after. So what if we were to do the same with some of the things that we have inherited? What if we took a hard look at what we are passing on to the next generation? Attitudes, behaviors, and beliefs. We have inherited a culture in which heavily armed, rugged individualism is woven deeply into cultural narratives about American masculinity. When we talk about mass shootings, we speak of things like mental health and availability of guns, 
Instead of naming the fact that what most mass shooters have in common is gender, we are in desperate need of a come-to-Jesus meeting about how generation to generation we are passing down maladaptive masculinity by socializing our boys in a culture of violence and not taking care to teach them how to handle emotions like disappointment, grief, and loss. It is hard to argue that there are any other reasons why 98% of mass shooters are men. And if you are thinking that progressives or liberals aren't part of passing on the inheritance of maladaptive masculinity, Emily Taylor invites us to reflect on just the past few days and how we included or didn't include our boys in Thanksgiving? Did we involve our boys in the preparations for Thanksgiving as much as we did our girls? Did we let our boys measure and mix and bake and create alongside our girls? Did they help set the table and pour drinks? Did they help clean up? As Emily Taylor said, we cannot let another generation of boys grow up to be men who think the kitchen is the domain of women until it's time to cut the turkey. If male violence is tied up with feelings of aggrieved entitlement, accompanied by a fear of being seen as soft, weak, feminine, or emasculated, the answer lies in creating more egalitarian adaptive and realistic definitions of manhood, particularly those that do not valorize violence as a means of achieving something of value. If you're wondering what that looks like, you might try our men's group, who lift each up each other's interests that involve everything from rocket launching to poetry writing. But most importantly, they check in on each other's grief loss and disappointment to help each other process moments, both big and small. You might also read For the Love of Men by Liz Plank for a new vision of mindful masculinity. And since we have a whole nother year before it comes around again, it's the best time to check the myths we've inherited about Thanksgiving. As theologian Lisa Sharon Harper writes, we continue to perpetuate the story that this day was born from a supposed shared meal between colonists and the Wampanoag people in 1621. But the first official Thanksgiving was proclaimed in 1637 by Governor Winthrop after the return of men who had participated in a massacre of over 700 Pequot women, children, and men. Thanksgiving, she continues, has been used to sanitize and whitewash a horrific history of genocide, an erasure that continues to this day in the form of broken treaties and promises. For example, Congress has still not seated Kimberly Teehee, who was selected in 2019 as the non-voting representative from the Cherokee Nation. 
The Cherokee Nation has been promised a delegate since the Treaty of New Ekota in 1835. Today, three years after the current delegate selection and nearly 200 years since the treaty promise was made, the Cherokee Nation is still waiting. It's not just Thanksgiving, of course. A progressive politico was recently quoted in the New York Times likening the midterm election results to, quote, escaping the massacre at the Battle of Little Bighorn. But that battle was not a massacre. It was a Lakota and Cheyenne victory against those seeking to massacre them. It was indigenous resistance framed as tragedy. Why? Because the stories we have inherited were written by white men determined to preserve the myths of inherent white male goodness, white male rightness, and white male rule. And white women have been mostly happy to eat the slice of pie we've been served. So let's stop telling our children the story of the pilgrims and the Indians and, st and instead teach them about groups of diverse and resilient people who have survived despite the odds. Lean in to those land acknowledgments like the one printed at the top of our bulletin and learn something together about the indigenous people who were displaced where they are now and what they are fighting for. And then let's find ways to pay micro restitution by donating to ongoing tribal efforts to bring health to native people, save native languages and protect native culture. If you are thinking that you are hearing the promotion of critical race theory from the pulpit, you betcha. <laughs> it is hard and holy work. It is the faithful thing to do. It is what we see Jesus do in his living and being and breathing. The root word of generation is gen, meaning origin or birth. As we wade deeper into the season of Advent, our call to action is to consider what we are being called to generate to bring forth what have our ancestors and those who have come before us passed on to us, for us to either lay to rest or pass on. Generation to generation, may we give our descendants reason to call us blessed. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. 
Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.